Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prefatory note of the last plainsman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Venditti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Prefatory note. Buffalo Jones needs no introduction to American sportsmen. But to those of my readers who are unacquainted with him, a few words may not be amiss. He was born sixty-two years ago on the Illinois prairie, and he has devoted practically all of his life to the pursuit of wild animals. It has been a pursuit which owed its unflagging energy and indomitable purpose to a singular passion, almost an obsession, to capture life, not to kill. He has caught and broken the will of every well-known wild beast native to western North America. Killing was repulsive to him. He even disliked the sight of a sporting rifle, though for years necessity compelled him to earn his livelihood by supplying the meat of buffalo to the caravans crossing the plains. At last seeing that the extinction of the noble beast was inevitable, he smashed his rifle over a wagon wheel and vowed to save the species. For ten years he labored, pursuing, capturing, and taming buffalo, for which the West gave him fame, and the name preserver of the American bison. As civilization encroached upon the plains, Buffalo Jones ranged slowly westward, and today an isolated desert-bound plateau on the north rim of the Grand Canyon of Arizona is his home. There his buffalo browse with the mustang and deer and are as free as ever they were on the rolling plains. In the spring of 1907, I was the fortunate companion of the old plainsman on a trip across the desert, and a hunt in that wonderful country of yellow crags, deep canyons, and giant pines. I want to tell you about it. I want to show the color and beauty of those painted cliffs and the long, brown-matted, bluebell-dotted aisles in the grand forests. I want to give a suggestion of the tang the dry, cool air. And particularly, I want to throw a little light upon the life and nature of that strange character and remarkable man, Buffalo Jones.
Happily in remembrance, the writer can live over his experiences and see once more the moon-blanched silver mountain peaks against the dark blue sky, hear the lonely sough of the night wind through the pines, feel a dance of the wild expectation in the quivering pulse, the stir, the thrill, the joy of hard action in perilous moments, the mystery of man's yearning for the unattainable. As a boy I read of Boone with a throbbing heart, and the silent moccasin, vengeful Wenzel I loved. I pored over the deeds of later men, Custer and Carson, those heroes of the plains, and as a man I came to see the wonder, the tragedy of their lives, and to write about them. It has been my destiny, what a happy fulfillment of my dreams of border spirit, to live for a while in the fast-fading wild environment which produced these great men with the last of the great plainsmen. Zane Gray. End of prefatory note. Chapter One of The Last Plainsman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter One. The Arizona Desert. One afternoon, far out on the sun-baked wastes of sage, we made camp near a clump of withered pinyon trees. The cold desert wind came down upon us with a sudden darkness. Even the Mormons, who were finding the trail for us across the drifting sands, forgot to sing and pray at sundown. We huddled around the campfire, a tired and silent little group, when out of the lonely, melancholy night some wandering Navajos stole like shadows to our fire. We hailed their advent with delight. They were good-natured Indians, willing to barter a blanket or bracelet, and one of them, a tall, gaunt fellow, with the bearing of a chief, could speak a little English. "'Oh!' said he, in a deep chest voice. "'Hello, Nauticotti,' greeted Jim Emmett, the Mormon guide. "'Ugh!' answered the Indian. "'Big pale-face, Buffalo Jones, big chief, Buffalo man,' introduced Emmett indicating Jones. How? Oh. The Navajos spoke with dignity and extended a friendly hand. Jones, big white chief, rope buffalo, tie up tight, continued Emmett, making motions with his arm as if he were whirling a lasso. No big heap small buffalo, said the Indian, holding his hand level with his knee and smiling broadly. Jones erect rugged, brawny, stood in the full light of the campfire. He had a dark, bronze, inscrutable face, a stern mouth and square jaw, keen eyes, half-closed from years of searching the wide plains and deep furrows wrinkling his cheeks. A strange stillness enfolded his features, the tranquility earned from a long life of adventure. He held up both muscular hands to the Navajo and spread out his fingers. Rope buffalo, heap big buffalo, heap many one son. The Indian straightened up, but kept his friendly smile. Me big chief, went on Jones. Me go far north, land of little sticks, Naza, Naza. Rope muskot, rope white manitou, of great slaves, Naza, Naza. Naza, replied the Navajo, pointing to the north star. No, no. Yes, me big pale face, me come long way toward setting sun, go cross big water, go buckskin, 
Siwash, chase cougar. The cougar, or mountain lion, is a Navajo god, and the Navajos hold him in as much fear and reverence as do the great slave Indians, the muskox. No kill cougar, continued Jones, as the Indian's bold features hardened. Run cougar horseback. Run long way. Dogs chase cougar long time. Chase cougar up tree. Me big chief. Me climb tree. Climb high up lasso cougar rope. Cougar tie cougar all tight. Navajo's solemn face relaxed. White man heap fun, no? Yes, cried Jones, extending his great arms. Me strong. Me rope cougar. Me tie cougar right off wigwam. Keep cougar alive. No replied the savage vehemently. "'Yes,' protested Jones, nodding earnestly. "'No,' answered the Navajo louder, raising his dark head. "'Yes!' shouted Jones. "'Big lie!' the Indian thundered. Jones joined good-naturedly in the laugh at his expense. The Indian had crudely voiced a skepticism. I had heard more delicately hinted in New York, and singularly enough, which had strengthened on our way west as we met ranchers, prospectors, and cowboys. But those few men I had fortunately met who really knew Jones more than overbalanced the doubt and ridicule cast upon him. I recalled a scarred old veteran of the plains who had talked to me in true western bluntness. "'Say, young feller, I hear you couldn't get across the canyon for the deep snow on the north rim. Well, you're lucky. Now you're hit the trail for New York and keep going.' Don't ever tackle the desert, especially with them Mormons. They've got water on the brain worse'n religion. It's two hundred and fifty miles from Flagstaff to Jones Range, and only two drinks on the trail. I know this here Buffalo Jones. I knowed him way back in the seventies, when he was doing them roping stunts that made him famous as the preserver of the American bison. I know about that crazy trip of his'n to the barren lands after musk ox and I reckon I can guess what he'll do over there in the sea-wash. He'll rope cougars, sure he will, and watch him jump. Jones would rope the devil and tie him down if the lasso didn't burn. Oh, he's hell on roping things, and he's worse'n hell on men and horses and dogs. All that my well-meaning friend suggested made me, of course, only the more eager to go with Jones. Where I had once been interested in the old buffalo hunter, I was now fascinated, and now I was with him in the desert and seeing him as he was, a simple, quiet man who fitted the mountains and the silences and the long reaches of distance. It does seem hard to believe all this about Jones, remarked Judd, one of Emmett's men. How could a man have the strength and the nerve? And isn't it cruel to keep wild animals in captivity? Isn't it against God's word? Quick as speech could flow, Jones quoted, And God said, Let us make man in our image, and give him dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, over the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Dominion over all the beasts of the field, repeated Jones, his big voice rolling out. He clenched his huge fist and spread wide his long arms. Dominion, that was God's word. The power and intensity of him could be felt. Then he relaxed, dropped his arm, and once more grew calm. But he had shown a glimpse of the great, strange, and absorbing passion of his life. 
Once he had told me how, when a mere child, he had hazarded limb and neck to capture a fox squirrel, how he had held on to the vicious little animal, though it bit his hand through, how he had never learned to play the games of boyhood, that when the youth of the little Illinois village were at play, he roamed the prairies of the rolling wooded hills or watched the gopher hole. That boy was father of the man. For sixty years an enduring passion for dominion over wild animals had possessed him, and made his life an endless pursuit. Our guests and Navajos departed early, and vanished silently in the gloom of the desert. We settled down again into a quiet that was broken only by the low chant-like song of the praying Mormon. Suddenly the hounds bristled, and old Mose, a surly and aggressive dog, rose and barked at some real or imaginary desert prowler. A sharp command from Jones made Mose crouch down, and the other hounds cowered close together. "'Better tie up the dogs,' suggested Jones. "'Like it or not, coyotes run down here from the hills.' The hounds were my especial delight, but Jones regarded them with considerable contempt. When all was said, this was no small wonder, for that quintet of long-eared canines would have tried the patience of a saint. Old Mose was a Missouri hound that Jones had procured in that state of uncertain qualities, and the dog had grown old over coon trails. He was black and white, grizzled and battle-scarred, and if ever a dog had an evil eye, Mose was that dog. He had a way of wagging his tail, an indeterminate, equivocal sort of wag, as if he realized his ugliness and knew he stood little chance of making friends, but was still hopeful and willing. As for me, the first time he manifested this evidence of a good heart under a rough coat, you won me forever. To tell of Moses' derelictions up to that time would take more space than would a history of the whole trip, but the enumeration of several incidents will at once stamp him as a dog of character, and will establish the fact that even if his progenitors had never taken any blue ribbons, they had at least bequeathed him fighting blood. At Flagstaff we chained him in the yard of a livery stable. Next morning we found him hanging by his chain on the other side of an eight-foot fence. We took him down, expecting to have the sorrowful duty of burying him. But Mose shook himself, wagged his tail, and then pitched into the livery stable dog. As a matter of fact, fighting was his forte. He whooped all the dogs in Flagstaff and when our bloodhounds came on from California, he put three of them hors de combat at once, and subdued the pup with a savage growl. His crowning feat, however, made even the stoical Jones open his mouth in amaze. We had taken Mose to El Tovar at the Grand Canyon, and finding it impossible to get over to the North Rim, we left him with one of Jones's men called Rust, who was working on the canyon trail. Rust's instructions were to bring Mose to Flagstaff in two weeks. He brought the dog a little ahead of time, and roared his appreciation of the relief it was to get the responsibility off his hands, and he related many strange things, most striking of which was how Mose had broken his chain and plunged into the raging Colorado River, and tried to swim it just above the terrible Stockdagger Rapids. Rust and his fellow workmen watched the dog disappear in the yellow, wrestling, turbulent whirl of waters and had heard his knell in the booming roar of the falls. Nothing but a fish could live in that current. Nothing but a bird could scale those perpendicular marble walls. That night, however, when the men crossed to the tramway, Mose, 
met them with a wag of his tail. He had crossed the river, and he had come back. To the four reddish-brown, big-framed bloodhounds, I had given the names of Don, Tige, Jude, and Ranger, and by the dint of persuasion had succeeded in establishing some kind of family relation between them and Mose. This night I tied up the bloodhounds after bathing and salving their sore feet, and I left Mose free, for he grew fretful and surly under restraint. The Mormons' prone, dark-blanket figures lay on the sand. Jones was crawling into his bed. I walked a little way from the dying fire and faced the north, where the desert stretched mysterious and illuminable. How solemn and still it was! I drew in a great breath of the cold air and thrilled with a nameless sensation. Something was there, away to the northward. It called me from out of the dark and gloom. I was going to meet it. I lay down to sleep with the great blue expanse open to my eyes. The stars were very large and wonderfully bright, yet they seemed so much further off than I had ever seen them. The wind softly sifted the sand. I hearkened to the tinkle of the cowbells on the hobbled horses. The last thing I remembered was old Mose creeping close to my side, seeking the warmth of my body. When I awakened, a long, pale line showed out of the dun-colored clouds in the east. It slowly lengthened and tinged to red. Then the morning broke, and the slopes of snow on the San Francisco peaks behind us glowed a delicate pink. The Mormons were up and doing with the dawn. They were stalwart men, rather silent and all workers. It was interesting to see them pack for the day's journey. They traveled with wagons and mules in the most primitive way, which Jones assured me was exactly as their fathers had crossed the plains fifty years before on the trail to Utah. All morning we made good time, and as we descended into the desert the air became warmer. The scrubby cedar growth began to fail, and the bunches of sage were few and far between. I turned often to gaze back at the San Francisco peaks. The snow-capped tips glistened and grew higher, and stood out in startling relief. Someone said they could be seen two hundred miles across the desert, and were landmark, and a fascination to all travelers thitherward. I never raised my eyes to the north that I did not draw my breath quickly, and grow chill with awe and bewilderment with the marvel of the desert. The scaly red ground descended gradually, bare red knolls like waves, rolled away northward, black buttes roared their flat heads, long ranges of sand flowed between them like streams, and all sloped away to merge into gray, shadowy obscurity, into wild and desolate, dreamy and misty nothingness. Do you see those white sand dunes there? More to the left, asked Emmett. The little Colorado runs in there. How far does it look to you? Thirty miles, perhaps, I replied, adding ten miles to my estimate. It's seventy-five. We'll get there day after tomorrow. If the snow in the mountains has begun to melt, we'll have a time getting across. That afternoon a hot wind blew in my face, carrying a fine sand that cut and blinded, filled my throat, sending me to the water cask till I was ashamed. When I fell into my bed at night, I never turned. The next day was hotter, the wind blew harder, the sand stung sharper. About noon the following day the horses whinnied, and the mules roused out of their tardy gait. They smell water, said Emmett, and despite the heat and sand in my nostrils I smelled it too. The dogs, poor foot-sore fellows, trotted on ahead down the trail. 
A few more miles of hot sand and gravel and redstone brought us around a low mesa to the little Colorado. It was a wide stream of swiftly running reddish muddy water. In a channel cut by floods, little streams trickled and meandered in all directions. The main part of the river ran in close to the bank we were on. The dogs lolled in the water, the horses and mules tried to run in, but were restrained. The men drank and bathed their faces. According to my flagstaff adviser, this was one of the two drinks I would get on the desert. So I availed myself heartily of the opportunity. The water was full of sand, but cold and gratefully thirst-quenching. The little Colorado seemed no more to me than a shallow creek. I heard nothing sullen or menacing in its musical floral. "'Doesn't look bad, eh?' queried Emmett, who read my thought. "'You'd be surprised to learn how many men and Indians, horses, sheep, and wagons are buried under that quicksand.' The secret was out, and I wondered no more. At once the stream and wet bars of sand took on a different color. I removed my boots and waded out to a little bar. The sand seemed quite firm, but water oozed out around my feet, and when I stepped the whole bar shook like jelly. I pushed my foot through the crust, and the cold, wet sand took hold and tried to suck me down. "'How can you ford this stream with horses?' I asked Emmett. "'Well, you must take our chances,' replied he. "'We'll hitch two teams to one wagon and run the horses. I forded here at worse stages than this. Once a team got stuck and I had to leave it. Another time the water was high and washed me downstream. Emmett sent his son into the stream on a mule. The rider lashed his mount and, plunging, splashing, crossed at a pace near a gallop. He returned in the same manner and reported one bad place near the other side. Jones and I got on the first wagon and tried to coax up the dogs, but they would not come. Emmett had to lash the four horses to start them, and the other Mormons, riding alongside, yelled at them and used their whips. The wagons bowled into the water with a tremendous splash. We were wet through before we had gone twenty feet. The plunging horses were lost in yellow spray. The stream rushed through the wheels. The Mormons yelled. I wanted to see, but was lost in a veil of yellow mist. Jones yelled in my ear, but I could not hear what he said. Once the wagon wheel struck a stone or log, almost lurching us overboard, a muddy splash behind me. I cried out in my excitement and punched Jones in the back. Next moment the keen exhilaration of the ride gave way to horror. We seemed to drag and almost stop. Someone roared, Horse down! One instant of painful suspense in which imagination pictured another tragedy added to the record of this deceitful river. A moment filled with intense feeling and sensation of splash and yell and fury of action. Then the three able horses dragged their comrade out of the quicksand. He regained his feet and plunged on. Spurred by fear, the horses increased their efforts and, amid clouds of spray, galloped the remaining distance to the other side. Jones looked disgusted. Like all plainsmen, he hated water. Emmett and his men calmly unhitched, no trace of alarm or even of excitement showed in their bronzed faces. "'We made it fine and easy,' remarked Emmett. So I sat down and wondered what Jones and Emmett and these men would consider really hazardous. I began to have a feeling that I would find out. That experience for me was but in its infancy, that far across the desert, that something which had called me would show hard, keen, perilous life. And I began to think of reserve powers of fortitude and endurance. The other wagons were brought across without mishap, but the dogs did not come with them. Jones called and called, the dogs howled and howled. 
Finally I waded out over the wet bars and little streams to a point several hundred yards nearer the dogs. Mose was lying down, but the others were whining and howling in a state of great perturbation. I called and called. They answered and even ran into the water, but did not start across. Hey, Mose! Hey, you Indian! I yelled, losing my patience. You've already swum the big Colorado, and this is only a brook. Come on! This appeal evidently touched Mose because he barked and plunged in. He made the water fly, and when carried off his feet, breasted the current with energy and power. He made sure almost even with me, and wagged his tail. Not to be outdone, Jude, Tig, and Don followed suit, and first one and then another was swept off his feet and carried downstream. They landed below me. This left Ranger, the pup, alone on the other side. Of all the pitiful yelps ever uttered by a frightened and lonely puppy, his was the most forlorn I had ever heard. Time after time he plunged in, and with many bitter howls of distress went back. I kept calling, and at last, hoping to make him come by a show of indifference, I started away. This broke his heart. Putting up his head, he let out a long, melancholy wail, which for aught I knew might have been a prayer, and then consigned himself to the yellow current. Ranger swam like a boy learning. He seemed to be afraid to get wet. His forefeet were continually pawing the air in front of his nose. When he struck the swift place, he went downstream like a flash, but still kept swimming valiantly. I tried to follow along the sandbar, but found it impossible. I encouraged him by yelling. He drifted far below, stranded on an island, crossed it, and plunged in again, to make sure almost out of my sight. And then at last I got to dry sand. There was Ranger, wet and disheveled, but consciously proud and happy. After lunch, we entered upon the seventy-mile stretch from the little to the big Colorado. Imagination had pictured the desert for me as a vast, sandy plain, flat and monotonous. Reality showed me desolate mountains gleaming bare in the sun, long lines of red bluffs, white sand dunes, and hills of blue clay, areas of level ground. In all, a many-hued, boundless world in itself, wonderful and beautiful, fading all around in the purple haze of deceiving distance. Thin, clear, sweet, dry, the desert air carried a languor, a dreaminess, tidings of far-off things and an enthralling promise, the fragrance of flowers, the beauty and grace of women, the sweetness of music, the mystery of life, all seemed to float on that promise. It was the air breathed by the lotus-eaters when they dreamed and wandered no more. Beyond the little Colorado we began to climb again. The sand was thick, the horses labored, the drivers shielded their faces, the dogs began to limp and lag. Ranger had to be taken into a wagon, and then, one by one, all of the other dogs except Mose, he refused to ride, and trotted along with his head down. Far to the front, the pink cliffs, the ragged messes, and the dark volcanic spurs of the big Colorado stood up and beckoned us onward, but they were a far hundred miles across the shifting sands and baked clay and ragged rocks. Always in the rear rose the San Francisco peaks, cold and pure startlingly clear and close in the rare atmosphere. We camped near another water-hole, located in a deep yellow-colored gorge, crumbling to pieces a ruin of rock and silent as the grave. In the bottom of the canyon was a pool of water, covered with green scum. My thirst was effectively quenched by the mere sight of it. I slept poorly and lay for hours watching the great stars. The silence was painfully oppressive. If Jones had not begun to give a respectable imitation of the exhaust pipe on a steamboat, 
I should have been compelled to shout aloud, or get up, but his snoring would have dispelled anything. The morning came gray and cheerless. I got up stiff and sore, with a tongue like a rope. All day long we ran the gauntlet of the hot flying sand. Night came again, a cold, windy night. I slept well until a mule stepped on my bed, which was conducive to restlessness. At dawn, cold, gray clouds tried to blot out the rosy east. I could hardly get up. My lips were cracked, my tongue was swollen to twice its natural size. My eyes smarted and burned. The barrels and kegs of water were exhausted. Holes that had been dug in the dry sand of a dry stream bed the night before in the morning yielded a scant supply of muddy alkali water, which went to the horses. Only twice that day did I rouse to anything resembling enthusiasm. We came to a stretch of country showing the wonderful diversity of the desert land. A long range of beautifully rounded clay dunes bordered the trail. So symmetrical were they that I imagined them work of sculptors. Light blue, dark blue, clay blue, marine blue, cobalt blue, every shade of blue was there, but no other color. The other time that I awoke to sensations from without was when we came to the top of a ridge. We had been passing through redlands. Jones called the place a strong, specific word, which really was illustrative of the heat amid those scaling red ridges. We came out where the red changed abruptly to gray. I seemed always to see things first, and I cried out, "'Look, here are a red lake and trees.' "'No, lad, not a lake,' said old Jim, smiling at me. "'That's what haunts the desert traveler. It's only a mirage.' So I awoke to the realization of that elusive thing, the mirage, a beautiful line, false as stairs of sand. Far northward a clear rippling lake sparkled in the sunshine. Tall, stately trees with waving green foliage bordered on water. For a long moment it lay there, smiling in the sun, a thing almost tangible. And then it faded. I felt a sense of actual loss. So real had been the illusion that I could not believe I was not soon to drink and wade and dabble in the cool waters. Disappointment was keen. This is what maddens the prospector or sheepherder lost in the desert. Was it not a terrible thing to be dying of thirst? to see sparkling water, almost to smell it, and then realize suddenly that all was only a lying trick of the desert, a lure, a delusion. I ceased to wonder at the Mormons and their search for water, their talk of water, but I had not realized its true significance. I had not known what water was. I had never appreciated it. So it was my destiny to learn that water is the greatest thing on earth. I hung over a three-foot hole in a dry stream bed and watched it ooze and seep through the sand and fill up, oh, so slowly, and I felt it loosen my parched tongue and steal through all my dry body with strength and life. Water is said to constitute three-fourths of the universe. However that may be on the desert, it is the whole world and all of life. Two days passed by all hot sand and wind and glare. The Mormons sang no more at evening. Jones was silent. The dogs were limp as rags. At Moncopi Wash we ran into a sandstorm. The horses turned their backs to it and bowed their heads patiently. The Mormons covered themselves. I wrapped a blanket round my head and hid behind a sagebrush. 
the wind carrying the sand made a strange hollow roar all was enveloped in a weird yellow opacity the sand seeped through the sagebrush and swept by with a soft rustling sound not unlike the wind in the rye from time to time i raised a corner of my blanket and peeped out where my feet had stretched was an enormous mound of sand i felt the blanket weighted down slowly settle over me suddenly as it had come the sandstorm passed it left a changed world for us the trail was covered the wheels hub deep in sand the horses walking sand dunes i could not close my teeth without grating harshly on sand we journeyed onward and passed long lines of petrified trees some a hundred feet in length lying as they had fallen thousands of years before white ants crawled among the ruins slowly climbing the sandy trail we circled a great red bluff with jagged peaks that had seemed an interminable obstacle a scant growth of cedar and sage again made its appearance here we halted to pass another night under a cedar i heard the plaintive piteous bleat of an animal i searched and presently found a little black and white lamb scarcely able to stand it came readily to me i carried it to the wagon that's a navajo lamb said emmett it's lost there are navajo indians close by away in the desert we heard its cry quoted one of the mormons jones and i climbed the red mesa near camp to see the sunset all the western world was ablaze in golden glory shafts of light shot toward the zenith and bands of paler gold tinging to rose circled away from the fiery sinking globe suddenly the sun sank the gold changed to gray then to purple and shadows formed in the deep gorge at our feet so sudden was the transformation that soon it was night the solemn impressive night of the desert a stillness that seemed too sacred to break clasped the place it was infinite it held the bygone ages and eternity more days and miles 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 the last day's ride to the big colorado was unforgettable we rode toward the head of a gigantic red cliff pocket a veritable inferno immeasurably hot glaring awful it towered higher and higher above us when we reached a point of this red barrier we heard the dull rumbling roar of water and we came out at length on a winding trail cut in the face of the bluff overhanging the colorado river the first sight of most famous and much heralded wonders of nature is often disappointing but never can this be said of the blood-hued rio colorado if it had beauty it was beauty that appalled so riveted was my gaze that i could hardly turn it across the river where emmett proudly pointed out his lonely home an oasis set down amidst beetling red cliffs how grateful to the eye was the green of alfalfa and cottonwood going round the bluff trail the wheels had only a foot of room to spare and the sheer descent into the red turbid congested river was terrifying i saw the constricted rapids where the colorado took its plunge into the box-like head of the grand canyon of arizona and the deep reverberating boom of the river at flood height was a fearful thing to hear i could not repress a shudder at the thought of crossing above that rapid the bronze walls widened as we proceeded and we got down presently to a level where a long wire cable stretched across the river under the cable ran a rope 
On the other side was an old scow moored to the bank. Are we going across in that? I asked Emmett, pointing to the boat. We'll all be on the other side before dark, he replied cheerily. I felt that I would rather start back alone over the desert than trust myself in such a craft on such a river. And it was all because I had experience with bad rivers, and I thought I was a judge of dangerous currents. The Colorado slid with a menacing roar out of a giant split in the red wall, whirled, eddied, bulged on toward its confinement in the iron-ribbed canyon below. In answer to shots fired, Emmett's man appeared on the other side and rode down to the ferry landing. He got into a skiff and rode laboriously upstream for a long distance before he started across, and then swung into the current. He swept down rapidly, and twice the skiff whirled and completely turned round. After he reached our bank safely, taking two men aboard, he rode upstream again, close to the shore, and returned to the opposite side in much the same manner in which he had come over. The three men pushed out the scow, and, grasping the rope overhead, began to pull. The big craft ran easily. When the current struck it, the wire cable sagged, the water boiled and surged under it, rising one end and then the other. Nevertheless, five minutes were all that were required to pull the boat over. It was a rude, oblong affair, made of heavy planks loosely put together, and it leaked. When Jones suggested that we get the agony over as quickly as possible, I was with him, and we embarked together. Jones said he did not like the look of the tackle, and when I thought of his, by no means small mechanical skill, I had not added a cheerful idea to my consciousness. The horses of the first team had to be dragged upon the scow, and once on, they reared and plunged. When we started, four men pulled the rope, and Emmett sat in the stern, with the tackle guys in hand. As the current hit us, he let out the guys, which maneuver caused the boat to swing stern downstream. When it pointed obliquely, he made fast the guys again. I saw that this served two purposes. The current struck, slid alongside, and over the stern, which mitigated the danger, and at the same time helped the boat across. To look at the river was to court terror but I had to look. It was an infernal thing. It roared in hollow, sullen voice, as a monster growling. It had a voice, this river, and one strangely changeful. It moaned as if in pain, it whined, it cried, and at times it would seem strangely silent. The current was as complex and as mutable as human life. It boiled, beat, and bulged. The bulge itself was an incomprehensible thing, like a roaring lift of the waters from a submarine explosion. Then it would smooth out and run like oil. It shifted from one channel to another, rushed to the center of the river, then swung close to one shore or the other. Again it swelled near the boat, in great boiling, hissing eddies. "'Look! See where it breaks through the mountain?' yelled Jones in my ear. I looked upstream to see the stupendous granite walls separated in a gigantic split that must have been made by a terrible seismic disturbance, and from this gap poured the dark, turgid, mystic flood. I was in a cold sweat when we touched shore, and I jumped long before the boat was properly moored. Emmett was wet to the waist, for the water had surged over him. As he sat rearranging some tackle, I remarked to him that, of course, he must be a splendid swimmer, or he would not take such risk. No, I, I can't swim a stroke, he replied, and it wouldn't be of any use if I could. Once in there, a man's a goner. 
You've had accidents here, I questioned. No, not bad. We only drowned two men last year. You see, we had to tow the boat up the river and row across, and then we hadn't the wire. Just above, on the other side, the boat hit a stone, and current washed over, taking off the team and two men. Didn't you attempt to rescue them, I asked, after waiting a moment? No use. They never came up. Isn't the river high now? I continued, shuddering as I glanced out at the whirling logs and drifts. I am coming up. If I don't get the other teams over today, I'll wait until she goes down. At this season she rises and lowers every day or so until June. Then comes the big flood, and we don't cross for months. I sat for three hours watching Emmett bring over the rest of his party, which he did without accident, but at the expense of great effort. And all the time in my ears dinned the roar, the boom, the rumble of this singularly propitious and purposeful river, a river of silt, a red river of dark, sinister meaning, a river with terrible work to perform, a river which never gave up its dead. End of chapter 1《Chapter Two of the Last Plainsman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter Two The Range. After a much needed rest at Emmett's, we bade good bye to him and his hospitable family, and under the guidance of his men, once more took to the windswept trail. We pursued a southwesterly course now, following the lead of the craggy red wall that stretched on and on for hundreds of miles into Utah. The desert, smoky and hot, fell away to the left, and in the foreground a dark, irregular line marked the Grand Canyon, cutting through the plateau. The wind whipped in from the vast open expanse, and meeting an obstacle on the red wall, turned north and raced past us. Jones's hat blew off, stood on its rim, and rolled. It kept on rolling thirty miles an hour, more or less, so fast, at least, that we were a long time catching up to it with a team of horses. Possibly we never would have caught it had not a stone checked its flight. Further manifestation of the power of the desert wind surrounded us on all sides. It had hollowed out huge stones from the cliffs and tumbled them to the plain below, and then, sweeping sand and gravel low across the desert floor, had cut them deeply until they rested on slender pedestals, thus sculpturing grotesque and striking monuments to the marvelous persistence of this element of nature. Late that afternoon we reached the height of the plateau. Jones woke up and shouted, Ah, there's buckskin! Far southward lay a long black mountain, covered with patches of shining snow. I could follow the zigzag line of the Grand Canyon, splitting the desert plateau, and saw it disappear in the haze round the end of the mountain. From this I got my first clear impression of the topography of the country surrounding our objective point. Buckskin Mountain ran its blunt end eastward to the canyon, in fact formed a hundred miles of the north rim. As it was nine thousand feet high it still held the snow, which had occasioned our lengthy desert ride to get back up the mountain. I could see the long slopes rising out of the desert to meet the timber. As we bowled merrily down grade, I noticed that we were no longer on stony ground, and that a little scant silvery grass had made its appearance. 
Then little branches of green with the blue flowers smiled out of the clayish sand. All of a sudden Jones stood up and let out a wild Comanche yell. I was more startled by the yell than by the great hand he smashed down on my shoulder, and for the moment I was dazed. There, look, look, the buffalo. Hi, hi, hi. Below us, a few miles, on a rising knoll, a big herd of buffalo shone black in the gold of the evening sun. I had not Jones's incentive, but I felt enthusiasm, born of the wild and beautiful picture, and added my yell to his. The huge, burly leader of the herd lifted his head, and after regarding us for a few moments, calmly went on browsing. The desert had fringed away into a grand rolling pasture-land, walled in by the red cliffs, the slopes of buckskin and further isolated by the canyon. Here was a range of twenty-four hundred square miles without a foot of barbed wire, a pasture fenced in by natural forces, with the splendid feature that the buffalo could browse on the plain in winter and go up into the cool foothills of buckskin in summer. From another ridge we saw a cabin dotting the rolling plain, and in half an hour we reached it. As we climbed down from the wagon, a brown and black dog came dashing out of the cabin and promptly jumped at Mose. This selection showed poor discrimination, for Mose whipped him before I could separate them. Hearing Jones heartily greeting someone, I turned in his direction, only to be distracted by another dogfight. Don had tackled Mose for the seventh time. Memory rankled in Don and needed a lot of whipping, some of which he was getting when I rescued him. Next moment I was shaking hands with Frank and Jim, Jones's ranchmen. At a glance I liked them both. Frank was short and wiry and had a big, ferocious mustache, the effect of which was softened by his kindly brown eyes. Jim was tall, a little heavier. He had a careless, tidy look. His eyes were searching, and, though he appeared a young man, his hair was white. "'I sure am glad to see you all,' said Jim in a slow, soft, southern accent. "'Get down, get down,' was Frank's welcome, a typically western one, for we had hardly gotten down. "'And come in.' You must be worked out. Sure you've come a long way. He was quick of speech, full of nervous energy, and beamed with hospitality. The cabin was the rudest kind of log affair, with a huge stone fireplace in one end, deer antlers and coyote skins on the wall, saddles and cowboys' traps in the corner, a nice large promising cupboard, and a cable and chairs. Jim threw wood on a smoldering fire that soon blazed and crackled cheerily. I sank down into a chair with a feeling of blessed relief. Ten days of desert right behind me, promise of wonderful days before me, with the last of the old plainsmen. No wonder a sweet sense of ease stole over me, or that the fire seemed a live and joyously welcoming thing, or that Jim's deft maneuvers in preparation of supper aroused in me a rapt admiration. Twenty calves is spring cried Jones, punching me in a sore side. Ten thousand dollars worth of calves. He was now altogether a changed man. He looked almost young. His eyes danced, and he rubbed his big hands together while he plied Frank with questions. In strange surroundings, that is, away from his native wilds, Jones had been a silent man. It had been almost impossible to get anything out of him. But now I saw that I should come to know the real man. In a very few moments he had talked more than on all the desert trip, and what he had said added to the little I had already learned. 
put me in possession of some interesting information as to his buffalo. Some years before he had conceived the idea of hybridizing buffalo with black Galloway cattle, and with the characteristic determination and energy of the man, he at once set about finding a suitable range. This was difficult, and took years of searching. At last, the wild north rim of the Grand Canyon, a section unknown, except to a few Indians and Mustang hunters, was settled upon. Then the gigantic task of transporting the herd of buffalo by rail from Montana to Salt Lake was begun. The 290 miles of desert lying between the home of the Mormons and the Buckskin Mountain was an obstacle almost insurmountable. The journey was undertaken and found even more trying than had been expected. Buffalo after buffalo died on the way. Then Frank Jones's right-hand man put into execution a plan he had been thinking of, namely, to travel by night. It succeeded. The buffalo rested in the day and traveled by easy stages by night, which the result that the big herd was transported to the ideal range. Here, in an environment strange to the race, but particularly adaptable, they thrived and multiplied. The hybrid of the Galloway cow and buffalo proved a great success. Jones called the new species Catalo. The Catalo took the hardiness of the buffalo and never required artificial food or shelter. He would face the desert storm or blizzard and stand stock still in his tracks until the weather cleared. He became quite domestic, could be easily handled, and grew exceedingly fat on very little provender. The folds of his stomach were so numerous that they digested even the hardest and flintiest of corn. He had fourteen ribs on each side, while domestic cattle had only thirteen. Thus he could endure rougher work and longer journeys to water. His fur was so dense and glossy that it equaled that of the unplucked beaver or otter and was fully as valuable as the buffalo robe. And not to be overlooked by any means was the fact that his meat was delicious. Jones had to hear every detail of all that had happened since his absence in the East, and he was particularly inquisitive to learn all about the twenty cattle calves. He called different buffalo by name, and designated the calves by descriptive terms such as white face and cross patch. He almost forgot to eat and kept Frank too busy to get anything into his own mouth. After supper, he calmed down. "'How about your other man, Mr. Wallace, I think you said?' asked Frank. "'We expected to meet him at Grand Canyon Station, and then at Flagstaff. But he didn't show up. Either he backed out or missed us. I'm sorry, for when we get up on buckskin among the wild horses and cougars, we'll be likely to need him.' "'I reckon you'll need me as well as Jim,' said Frank dryly, with a twinkle in his eye. The buffs are in good shape and can get along without me for a while. That'll be fine. How about cougar sign on the mountain? Plenty. We got two spotted coming over near Oak Spring two weeks ago. I tracked them in the snow along the trail for miles. We'll ease over that way as it's going towards the Siwash. The Siwash breaks of the canyon. There's the place for lions. I met a wild horse wrangler not long back and he was telling me about old Tom and the colts he'd killed this winter. Naturally, I expressed here a desire to know more of old Tom. He's the biggest cougar ever known in these parts. His tracks are bigger than a horse's and have been seen on buckskin for twelve years. This wrangler, his name is Chuck, said he turned his saddle horse out to graze near camp, and old Tom sneaked in and downed him. 
Lions over there are sure a bold bunch. Well, why shouldn't they be? No one ever hunted them. You see, the mountain is hard to get at. But now you're here, and big cats you want, we sure can find them. Only be easy. Be easy. You've all the time there is, and any job on buckskin will take time. We'll look the calves over, and you must ride the range to harden up. Then we'll ooze over towards Oak. I expect it'll be boggy, and I hope the snow melts soon. The snow hadn't melted on Greenland Point, replied Jones. We saw that with a glass from the El Tovar. We wanted to cross that way, but Rust said Bright Angel Creek was breast-high to a horse, and that creek is the trail. There's four feet of snow on Greenland, said Frank. It was too early to come that way. There is only about three months in the year the canyon can be crossed at Greenland. I want to get in the snow, returned Jones. This bunch of long-eared canines I brought never smelled a lion track. Hounds can't be trained quick without snow. You've got to see what they're trailing, or you can't break them. Frank looked dubious. Pears to me we'll have trouble getting a lion without lion dogs. It takes a long time to break a hound off a deer, once he's chased him. Buckskin is full of deer, wolves, coyotes, and there's the wild horses. We couldn't go a hundred feet without crossing trails. How's the hound you and Jim fetched in last year? Has he got a good nose? Here he is. I like his head. Come here, Bowser. What's his name? Jim named him Sounder, because he sure has a voice. It's great to hear him on the trail. Sounder has a nose that can't be fooled, and he'll trail anything. But I don't know if he ever got up on a lion. Sounder wagged his bushy tail and looked up affectionately at Frank. He had a fine head, great brown eyes, very long ears, and curly brownish-black hair. He was not demonstrative, looked rather askance at Jones, and avoided the other dogs. "'A dog will make a great lion-chaser,' said Jones decisively, after his study of Sounder. "'He and Mose will keep us busy once they learn we want lions.' "'I don't believe any dog-trainer could teach them short of six months,' replied Frank. "'Sounder is no spring chicken, and that black and dirty white cross between a coyote and a barbed-wire fence.' is an old dog. You can't teach old dogs new tricks." Jones smiled mysteriously, a smile of conscious superiority, but said nothing. "'Well, sure have a storm tomorrow,' said Jim, relinquishing his pipe long enough to speak. He had been silent, and now his meditative gaze was on the west, through the cabin window, where a dull afterglow faded after the heavy laden clouds of night, and left the horizon dark. I was very tired when I lay down, but so full of excitement that sleep did not soon visit my eyelids. The talk about buffalo, wild horse hunters, lions, and dogs, the prospect of hard riding and unusual adventure, the vision of old Tom, that had already begun to haunt me, filled my mind with pictures and fancies. The other fellows dropped off to sleep, and quiet reigned. Suddenly a succession of queer sharp barks came from the plain, close to the cabin, coyotes were paying us a call, and judging from the chorus of yelps and howls from our dogs, it was not a welcome visit. Above the medley rose a big, deep, full voice that I knew at once belonged to Sounder. Then all was quiet again. Sleep gradually benumbed my senses. Vague phrases dreamily drifted to and fro in my mind. Jones, wild range, old Tom, Sounder, great name, great voice, Sounder. 
sounder sound. Next morning I could hardly crawl out of my sleeping bag. My bones ached, my muscles protested excruciatingly, my lips burned and bled, and the cold I had contracted on the desert clung to me. A good brisk walk around the corrals and then breakfast made me feel better. "'Of course you can ride,' queried Frank. My answer was not given from an overwhelming desire to be truthful. Frank frowned a little, as if wondering how a man could have the nerve to start out on a jaunt with Buffalo Jones without being a good horseman. To be unable to stick on the back of a wild mustang or a cayuse was an unpardonable sin in Arizona. My frank admission was made relatively, with my mind on what cowboys held as a standard of horsemanship. The mount Frank trotted out from the corral for me was a pure white, beautiful mustang, nervous, sensitive, quivering. I watched Frank put on the saddle, and when he called me, I did not fail to catch a covert twinkle in his merry brown eyes. Looking away toward Buckskin Mountain, which was coincidentally in the direction of home, I said to myself, This may be where you get on, but most certainly it is where you get off. Jones was already riding far beyond the corral, as I could see by a cloud of dust, and I set off after him, with the painful consciousness that I must have looked to Frank and Jim, much as Central Park equestrians had often looked to me. Frank shouted after me that he would catch up with us out on the range. I was not in any great hurry to overtake Jones, but evidently my horse's inclinations differed from mine. At any rate, he made the dust fly and jumped the little sagebrushes. Jones, who had tarried to inspect one of the pools formed of running water from the corrals, greeted me as I came up with this cheerful observation. What in thunder did Frank give you that white nag for? Buffalo hate white horses, anything white. They're liable to stampede off the range or chase you into the canyon. I replied grimly that, as it was certain something was going to happen, the particular circumstance might as well come off quickly. We rode over the rolling plain with the cool, bracing breeze in our faces. The sky was dull and mottled, with a beautiful cloud effect that pre-staged wind. As we trotted along, Jones pointed out to me and descanted upon the nutritive value of three different kinds of grass, one of which he called the buffalo pea noteworthy for a beautiful blue blossom. Soon we passed out of sight of the cabin, and could see only the billowy plain, the red tips of the stony wall, and the black fringe crest of buckskin. After riding a while, we met out some cattle, a few of which were on the range browsing in the lee of a ridge. No sooner had I marked them than Jones let out another Comanche yell. Wolf! he yelled, and spurring his big bay, he was off like the wind. A single glance showed me several cows running, as if bewildered, and near them a big white wolf pulled down a calf. Another white wolf stood not far off. My horse jumped, as if he had been shot, and the realization darted upon me that here was where the certain something began. Spot the Mustang had one black spot on his pure white, snorted like I imagined a blooded horse might, under dire insult. Jones's bay had gotten about a hundred paces the start. I lived to learn that Spot hated to be left behind. Moreover, he would not be left behind. He was the swiftest horse on the range, and proud of the distinction. I cast one unmentionable word on the breeze toward the cabin and Frank, then put mind and muscle to the sore task of remaining with Spot. Jones was born on a saddle, 
and had been taking his meals in a saddle for about sixty-three years, and the bay horse could run. Run is not a felicious word. He flew, and I was rendered mentally deranged for the moment to see that hundred paces between the bay and spot materially lessen at every jump. Spot lengthened out, seemed to go down near the ground, and cut the air like a high-geared auto. If I had not heard the fast rhythmic beat of his hoofs, and not bounced high into the air at every jump, I would have been sure. I was riding a bird. I tried to stop him. As well might I have tried to pull in the Lusitania with a thread. Spot was out to overhaul the bay, and in spite of me, he was doing it. The wind rushed into my face and sang in my ears. Jones seemed the nucleus of a sort of haze, and he grew larger and larger. Presently he became clearly defined in my sight. The violent commotion under me subsided. I once more felt the saddle, and then I realized that Spot had been content to stop alongside of Jones, tossing his head and chopping at his bit. "'Well, by George, I didn't know you were in the stretch,' cried my companion. "'That was a fine little brush. We must have come several miles. I'd have killed those wolves if I'd have brought a gun. The big one that had the calf was a bold brute. He never let go until I was within fifty feet of him. Then I almost rode him down. I don't think the calf was much hurt. But those bloodthirsty devils will return, and like as not get the calf. That's the worst of cattle raising. Now take the buffalo. Do you suppose those wolves could have gotten the buffalo calf out from under the mother? Never. Neither could a whole band of wolves. Buffaloes stick close together, and the little ones do not stray. When danger threatens, the herd closes in and faces it, and fights. That is what is grand about the buffalo, and what made them once roam the prairies in countless, endless droves. From the highest elevation in that part of the range, we viewed the surrounding ridges, flats and hollows, searching for the buffalo. At length we spied a cloud of dust rising from behind an undulating mound. Then big black dots hove in sight. Frank has rounded up the herd and is driving it this way. We'll wait, said Jones. The little buffalo appeared to be moving fast. A long time elapsed before they reached the foot of our outlook. They lumbered along in a compact mass so dense that I could not count them, but I estimated the number to be at seventy-five. Frank was riding zigzag behind them swinging his lariat and yelling. When he espied us, he reined in his horse and waited. Then the herd slowed down, halted, and began browsing. Look at the cattle calves. See how shy they are, how close they stick to the mothers. The little brown fellows were plainly frightened. I made several unsuccessful attempts to photograph them and gave up when Jones told me not to ride too close and that it would be better to wait till we had them in a corral. He took my camera and instructed me to go on ahead, in the rear of the herd. I heard the click of the instrument as he snapped a picture, and then suddenly I heard him shout in alarm, "'Look out! Look out! Pull your horse!' Thundering hoof-beats pounding the earth accompanied his word. I saw a big bull with his head down, tail raised, charging my horse. He answered Frank's yell of command with a furious grunt. I was paralyzed at the wonderfully swift action of the shaggy brute, and I sat helpless. Spot wheeled as if he were on a pivot, and plunged out of the way with a celerity that was astounding. The buffalo stopped, pawed the ground, and angrily tossed his huge head. Frank rode up to him, yelled, and struck him with the lariat, whereupon he gave another toss of his horns, and then returned to the herd. It was that derned white nag, 
said Jones. Frank, it was wrong to put an inexperienced man on spot. For that matter, the horse should never be allowed to go near Buffalo. Spot knows the buffs. They'd never get to him, replied Frank. But the usual spirit was absent from his voice, and he glanced at me soberly. I knew I had turned white, for I felt the peculiar cold sensation in my face. Now look at that, will you? cried Jones. I don't like the looks of that. He pointed to the herd. They stopped browsing and were uneasily shifting to and fro. The bull lifted his head. The others slowly grouped together. Storm, sandstorm, exclaimed Jones, pointing desertward. Dark yellow clouds like smoke were rolling, sweeping, bearing down upon us. They expanded, blossoming out like gigantic roses, and whirled and merged into one another, all the time rolling on and blotting out the light. We've got to run. That storm may last two days, yelled Frank to me. We've had some bad ones lately. Give your horse free rein and cover your face. A roar resembling an approaching storm at sea came on puffs of wind as the horses got onto their stride. Long streaks of dust whipped up in different places. The silver-white grass bent to the ground. Round bunches of sage went rolling before us. The puffs grew longer, steadier, harder. Then a shrieking blast howled on the arc trail, seeming to swoop down on us with a yellow, blinding pall. I shut my eyes and covered my face with a handkerchief. The sand blew so thick that it filled my gloves. Pebbles struck me hard enough to sting through my coat. Fortunately, Spot kept to an easy swinging lope, which was the most comfortable motion for me, but I began to get numb and could hardly stick on the saddle. Almost before I had dared to hope, Spot stopped. Uncovering my face, I saw Jim in the doorway of the lee side of the cabin. The yellow, streaky, whistling clouds of sand split on the cabin and passed on, leaving a small dusty space of light. Sure, Spot do hate to be beat, yelled Jim as he helped me off. I stumbled into the cabin and fell upon a buffalo robe and lay there absolutely spent. Jones and Frank came in a few minutes apart, each anathematizing the gritty, powdery sand. All day the desert storm raged and roared. The dust sifted through the numerous cracks in the cabin, burdened our clothes, spoiled our food, and blinded our eyes. Wind, snow, sleet, and rainstorms are discomforting enough under trying circumstances, but all combined, they are nothing to the choking, stinging, blinding sandstorm. Sure, it'll let up by sundown, appeared Jim. And sure enough, the roar died away about five o'clock. The wind abated and the sand settled. Just before supper, a knock sounded heavily on the cabin door. Jim opened it to admit one of Emmett's son and a very tall man whom none of us knew. He was a sand man. All that was not sand seemed a space or two of corduroy a big bone-handled knife, a prominent square jaw, and bronze cheek and flashing eyes. "'Get down, get down. Come on in, stranger,' said Frank cordially. "'How do you do, sir?' said Jones. "'Colonel Jones, I've been on your trail for twelve days,' announced the stranger with a grim smile. The sand streamed off his coat in little white streaks. Jones appeared to be casting about in his mind. "'I'm Grant Wallace,' continued the newcomer. "'I missed you at L Tower at Williams.' and at Flagstaff, where I was one day behind. Was half a day late at the little Colorado, saw your train across Moncapé Wash, and missed you because of the sandstorm there. Saw you from the other side of the big Colorado, as you rode out from Emmett's along the red wall. And here I am. We've never met till now, which obviously isn't my fault. The colonel and I fell upon Wallace's neck. 
Frank manifested his usual alert excitation and said, Well, I guess he won't hang fire on a long cougar chase. And Jim, slow, careful Jim, dropped a plate with the exclamation, Sure it do beat hell. The hound sniffed around Wallace and welcomed him with vigorous tails. Supper that night, even if we did grind sand with our teeth, was a joyous occasion. The biscuits were flaky and light, the bacon fragrant and crisp. I produced a jar of blackberry jam, which, by subtle cunning, I had been able to secrete from the Mormons on the dry desert ride, and it was greeted with acclamations of pleasure. Wallace, divested of his sand guise, beamed with the gratification of a hungry man, once more in the presence of friends and food. He made large cavities in Jim's great pot of potato stew, and caused biscuits to vanish in a way that would not have shamed a Hindu magician. The Grand Canyon he dug in my jar of jam, however, could not have been accomplished by a ledger demain. Talk became animated on dogs, cougars, horses, and buffalo. Jones told of our experience out on the range and concluded with some salient remarks. A tame wild animal is the most dangerous of beasts. My old friend Dick Rock, a great hunter and guide out of Idaho, laughed at my advice and got killed by one of his three-year-old bulls. I told him they knew him just well enough to kill him, and they did. My friend H. Cole of Oxford, Nebraska, tried to rope a Weetaw that was too tame to be safe and the bull killed him. Same with General Bull, a member of the Kansas legislature, and two cowboys, who went into a corral to tie up a tame elk at the wrong time. I pleaded with them not to undertake it. They had not studied animals as I had. That tame elk killed all of them. He had to be shot in order to get General Bull off his great antlers. You see, a wild animal must learn to respect a man. The way I used to teach the Yellowstone Park bears to be respectable and safe neighbors was to rope them around the front paw, swing them up on a tree clear of the ground, and whoop them with a long pole. It was a dangerous business and looks cruel, but it is the only way I could find to make the bears good. You see, they eat scraps around the hotels and get so tame they will steal everything but red-hot stoves and will cuff the life out of those who try to shoo them off. But after a bear mother has had a licking, she not only becomes a good bear for the rest of her life, but she tells all her cubs about it with a good smack of her paw for emphasis, and teaches them to respect peaceable citizens, generation after generations. One of the hardest jobs I ever tackled was that of supplying the buffalo for Bronx Park. I rounded up a magnificent king buffalo bull, belligerent enough to fight a battleship. When I rode after him, the common said I was as good as killed. I made a lance by driving a nail into the end of a shorter pole and sharpening it. After he had chased me, I wheeled my bronco and hurled the lance into his back, ripping a wound as long as my hand. That put the fear of providence into him and took the fight all out of him. I drove him uphill and down and across canyons at a dead run for eight miles, single-handed, and loaded him on a freight car. But he came near getting me once or twice, and only quick bronco work and lance play saved me. In the Yellowstone Park all our buffaloes have become docile, excepting the huge bull which led them. The Indians call the buffalo leader the Weetah, the master of the herd. It was sure death to go near this one. 
so i shipped in another weetah hoping that he might whip some of the fight out of the old manitou the mighty they came together head-on like a railway collision and ripped up over a square mile of landscape fighting till night came on and then on into the night i jumped into the field with them chasing them with my biograph getting a series of moving pictures of the bullfight which was sure a real thing it was a ticklish thing to do though knowing that neither bull dared take his eyes off his adversary for a second felt reasonably safe the old weetah beat the new champion out that night but the next morning they were at it again and the new buffalo finally whipped the old one into submission since then his spirit has remained broken and even a child can approach him safely but the new weetah is in turn a holy terror to handle buffalo elk and bear you must get into sympathy with their methods of reasoning no tenderfoot stands any show even with the tame animals of the yellowstone the old buffalo hunter's lips were no longer locked one after another he told reminiscence of his eventful life in a simple manner yet so vivid and gripping were the unvarnished details that i was spellbound considering what appears the impossibility of capturing a full-grown buffalo how did you earn the name of preserver of the american bison inquired wallace it took years to learn how and ten more to capture the fifty-eighth that i was able to keep i tried every plan under the sun i roped hundreds of all sizes and ages they would not live in captivity if they could not find an embankment over which to break their necks they would crush their skulls on stones failing any means like that they would lie down will themselves to die and die think of a savage wild nature that could will its heart to cease beating but it's true finally i found that i could keep only calves under three months of age but to capture them so young entailed time and patience for the buffalo fight for their young and when i say fight i mean they till they drop i almost always had to go alone because i could neither coax nor hire anyone to undertake it with me sometimes i would be weeks on getting one calf one day i captured eight eight little buffalo calves never will i forget that day as long as i live tell us about it i suggested in a matter-of-fact round the campfire voice had the silent plainsman ever told a complete and full story of his adventures i doubted it he was not the man to eulogize himself a short silence ensued the cabin was snug and warm the ruddy embers glowed one of jim's pots steamed musically and fragrantly the hounds lay curled in a cosy chimney corner jones began to talk again simply and unaffectedly of his famous exploit and as he went on so modestly passing lightly over features we recognized as wonderful i allowed the fire of my imagination to fuse for myself all the toil patience endurance skill herculean strength and marvelous courage and unfathomable passion which he slighted in his narrative end of chapter two chapter three of the last plainsman this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain recording by mike vendetti the last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter 3 The Last Herd. Over gray no man's land, 
stole down the shadows of night. The undulating prairie, shaded dark to the western horizon, rimmed with a fading streak of light. Tall figures, silhouetted sharply against the last golden glow of sunset, marked the rounded crest of a glassy knoll. "'Wild hunter!' cried a voice in sullen rage. "'Buffalo or no, we halt here. Did Adams and I hire to cross the staked plains? Two weeks in no man's land, and now we're facing the sand. We've one keg of water, yet you want to keep on.' Why, man, you're crazy. You didn't tell us you wanted buffalo alive. And here you've got us looking death in the eye. In the grim silence that ensued, the two men unhitched the team from the long, light wagon, while the buffalo hunter staked out his wiry, lithe-limbed racehorses. Soon a fluttering blaze threw a circle of light which shone on the agitated face of Rude and Adams, and the cold, iron-set visage of their brawny leader. It's this way, began Jones in slow, cool voice. I engaged you fellows, and you promised to stick by me. We've had no luck, but I've finally found sign, old sign, I'll admit, of the buffalo I'm looking for, the last herd on the plains. For two years I've been hunting this herd, so have other hunters. Millions of buffalo have been killed and left to rot. Soon this herd will be gone and then the only buffalo in the world will be those I have given ten years of the hardest work in capturing. This is the last herd, I say, and my last chance to capture a calf or two. Do you imagine I'd quit? You fellows go back if you want, but I keep on. We can't go back. We're lost. We'll have to go with you. But, man, thirst is not the only risk we run. This is Comanche country. And if that herd is in here, the Indians have it spotted. That worries me some, replied the plainsman, but we'll keep on. They slept. The night wind swished the grasses. Dark storm clouds blotted out the northern stars. The prairie wolves mourned dismally. Day broke cold, wan, threatening. Under a leaden sky, the hunters traveled thirty miles by noon and halted in a hollow where a stream flowed in wet season. Cottonwood trees were bursting into green. Thickets of prickly thorn, dense and matted, showed bright spring buds. "'What is it?' suddenly whispered Rude. The plainsman lay in strained posture, his ear against the ground. "'Hide the wagon and horses in that clump of cottonwoods,' he ordered tersely. Springing to his feet, he ran to the top of the knoll above the hollow, where he again placed his ear to the ground. Jones's practiced ear had detected the quavering rumble of faraway thundering hooves. He searched the wide waste of plain with his powerful glass. To the southwest, miles distant, a cloud of dust mushroomed skyward. "'Not buffalo,' he muttered. "'Maybe wild horses.' He watched and waited. The yellow cloud rolled forward, enlarging, spreading out, and drove before it a darkly indistinct moving mass. As soon as he had one good look at this, he ran back to his comrades. "'Stampede! Wild horses! Indians! Look to your rifles and hide!' Wordless and pale, the men examined their sharps and made ready to follow Jones. He slipped into the thorny brake, and flat on his stomach wormed his way like a snake far into the thickly interlaced web of branches. Rudin Adams crawled after him. Words were superfluous. Quiet, breathless, with beating hearts, the hunters pressed close to the dry grass. A long, low, steady rumble filled the air, and increased in volume till it became a roar. Moments, endless moments, passed. The roar filled out like a flood slowly released from its confines to sweep down with the sound of doom. 
The ground began to tremble and quake. The light faded. The smell of dust pervaded the thicket. Then a continuous streaming roar, deafening as a persistent roar of thunder, pervaded the hiding place. The stampeding horses had split around the hollow. The roar lessened, swiftly as a departing snow squall, rushing on through the pines. The thunderous thud and tramp of hooves died away. The trained horses, hidden in the cottonwoods, never stirred. Lie low, lie low, breathed the plainsman to his companions. Throb of hoofs again became audible, not loud and madly pounding as those that had passed, but low, muffled, rhythmic. Jones's sharp eye through a peephole in the thicket saw a cream-colored mustang bob over the knoll, carrying an Indian, another and another, then a swiftly following, close-packed throng appeared. Bright red feathers and white gleamed. Weapons glinted. Gaunt bronze savages leaned forward on racy, slender mustangs. The plainsman shrank closer to the ground. Apache! he exclaimed to himself and gripped his rifle. The band galloped down to the hollow and, slowing up, piled single file over the bank. The leader, a short squat chief, plunged into the break not twenty yards from the hidden men. Jones recognized the cream mustang. He knew the somber, sinister, broad face. It belonged to the red chief of the Apaches. Geronimo, murmured the plainsman through his teeth. Well, for the Apache that no falcon savage eye discovered aught strange in that little hollow. One look at the sand of the stream bed would have cost him his life. But the Indians crossed the thicket, too far up. They cantered up the slope and disappeared. The hoofbeats softened and ceased. Gone, whispered Rude. Gone, but wait, whispered Jones. He knew the savage nature, and he knew how to wait. After a long time, he cautiously crawled out of the thicket and searched the surroundings with the plainsman's eye. He climbed the slope and saw the clouds of dust, the near one small, the far one large, which told him all he needed to know. Comanches? queried Adams, with a quaver in his voice. He was new to the plains. Likely, said Jones, who thought it best not to tell all he knew. Then he added to himself, We've no time to lose. There's water back here somewhere. The Indians have spotted the buffalo, and we're running the horses away from the water. The three got under way again, proceeding carefully, so as not to raise the dust, and headed due southwest. Scantier and scantier grew the grass. The hollows were washes of sand. Steely gray dunes, like long, flat ocean swells, ripped the prairie. The gray day declined. Late into the purple night, they traveled, then camped without fire. In the gray morning, Jones climbed a high rise and scanned the southwest. Low, dun-colored sandhills waved from him down and down in slow, deceptive descent. A solitary and remote waste reached out into gray infinitude. A pale lake, gray as the rest of the gray expanse, glimmered in the distance. Mirage, he muttered, focusing his glass, which only magnified all under the dead gray steel sky. Water must be somewhere. But can that be it? It's too pale and elusive to be real. No life, a blasted, staked plain. Hello. A thin black wavering line of wild fowl, moving in a beautiful rapid flight, crossed the line of his vision. Geese flying north and low. There's water here, he said. He followed the flock with his glass, saw them circle over the lake and vanish in the gray sheen. It's water. He hurried back to the camp. His haggard and worn companion scorned his discovery. Adam, siding with Rude, who knew the plane, said, 
mirage, the lure of the desert. Yet dominated by a force too powerful for them to resist, they followed the buffalo hunter. All day the gleaming lake beckoned them onward, and seemed to recede. All day the drab clouds scudded before the cold north wind. In the gray twilight the lake suddenly lay before them, as if it had opened at their feet. The men rejoiced, the horses lifted their noses, and sniffed the damp air. The whinnies of the horses, the clank of harnesses and splash of water, the whir of ducks, did not blur out of Joan's keen ear. A sound that made him jump it was the thump of hoofs, and a familiar beat, beat, beat. He saw a shadow moving up a ridge, soon outlined black against the yet light sky. A lone buffalo cow stood like a statue. A moment she held toward the lake, studying the danger, then went out of sight over the ridge. Jones spurred his horse up the ascent, which was rather long and steep, but he mounted the summit in time to see the cow join eight huge, shaggy buffalo. The hunter reined in his horse, and standing high in his stirrups, held his hat at arm's length over his head. So he thrilled to a moment he had sought for two years. The last herd of American bison was near at hand. The cow would not venture far from the main herd. The eight stragglers were the old broken-down bulls that had been expelled at this season from the herd by younger and more vigorous bulls. The old monarch saw the hunter at the same time his eyes were gladdened by sight of them, and lumbered away after the cow to disappear in the gathering darkness. Frightened buffalo always make straight for their fellows, and this knowledge contented Jones to return to the lake, well satisfied that the herd would not be far away in the morning within easy striking distance by daylight. At dark the storm which had threatened for days broke in a fury of rain, sleet, and hail. The hunter stretched a piece of canvas over the wheels of the north side of the wagon, and wet and shivering crawled under it to their blankets. During the night the storm raged with unabated strength. Dawn, forbidding and raw, lightened to the whistle of the sleety gusts. Fire was out of the question. Cherry of weight the hunters had carried no wood, and the buffalo chips they used for fuel were lumps of ice. Grumbling, Adams and Rude ate a cold breakfast while Jones, munching a biscuit, faced the biting blast from the crest of the ridge. The middle of the plain below held a ragged circular mass as still as stone. It was the buffalo herd, with every shaggy head to the storm. So they would stand, never budging from their tracks, till the blizzard of sleet was over. Jones, though eager and impatient, restrained himself, for it was unwise to begin operations in the storm. There was nothing to do but wait. Ill fared the hunters that day. Food had to be eaten uncooked. The long hours dragged by with the little group huddled under icy blankets. When darkness fell, the sleep changed to drizzling rain. This blew over at midnight, and a colder wind penetrating to the very marrow of the sleepless men made their condition worse. In the after part of the night the wolves howled mournfully. With a gray misty light appearing in the east, Jones threw off his stiff ice-encased blanket and crawled out. Gaunt gray wolf, the color of the day, and the sand and the lake, sneaked away, looking back. While moving and thrashing about to warm his frozen blood, Jones munched another biscuit. His men crawled from under the wagon and made an unfruitful search for the whiskey. Fearing it, Jones had thrown the bottle away. The men cursed. The patient horses drooped sadly and shivered in the lee of the improvised tent. Jones kicked the inch-thick casing of ice from his saddle. Kentuck, his racer, 
had been spared on the whole trip for this day's work. The thoroughbred was cold, but as Jones threw the saddle over him, he showed that he knew the chase ahead, and was eager to be off. At last, after repeated efforts with his benumbed fingers, Jones got the girths tight. He tied a bunch of soft cords to the saddle and mounted. "'Follow as fast as you can,' he called to his surly men. "'The bluffs will run north against the wind. This is the right direction for us. We'll soon leave the sand. Stick to my trail and come a-humming.' From the ridge he met the red sun, rising bright, and a keen northeasterly wind that lashed like a whip. As he had anticipated, his quarry had moved northward. Kentuck let out into a swinging stride, which in an hour had the loping herd in sight. Every jump now took him upon higher ground, where the sand failed and the grass grew thicker and began to bend under the wind. In the teeth of the nipping gale, Jones slipped close upon the herd without alarming even a cow. More than a hundred little reddish-black calves leisurely loped in the rear. Kentuck, keen to his work, crept on like a wolf, and the hunter's great fist clenched the coiled lasso. Before him expanded a boundless plain, a situation long cherished and dreamed of had become a reality. Kentuck, fresh and strong, was good for all day. Jones gloated over the little red bulls and heifers as a miser gloats over gold and jewels. Never before had he caught more than two in one day, and often it had taken days to capture one. This was the last herd, this the last opportunity toward perpetuating a grand race of beasts, and with born instinct he saw ahead the day of his life. At a touch, Kentuck closed in, and the buffalo, seeing him, stampeded into a heaving roll so well known to the hunter. Racing on the right flank of the herd, Jones selected a tawny heifer and shot the lariat after her. It fell true, but being stiff and kinky from the sleet, failed to tighten, and the quick calf leaped through the loop to freedom. Undismayed, the pursuer quickly recovered his rope. Again he whirled and sent the loop. Again it circled true and failed to close. Again the agile heifer bounded through it. Jones whipped the air with a stubborn rope. To lose a chance like that was worse than boy's work. The third whirl, running a smaller loop, tightened the coil round the frightened calf just back of its ears. A pull on the bridle brought Kentuck to a halt in the tracks, and the baby buffalo rolled over and over in the grass. Jones bounced from his seat and jerked loose a couple of the soft cords in a twinkling. His big knee crushed down on the calf, and his big hands bounded helpless. Kentuck neighed. Jones saw his black ears go up. Danger threatened. For a moment the hunter's blood turned chill, not from fear, for he never felt fear, but because he thought the Indians were returning to ruin his work. His eyes swept the plain. Only the gray forms of wolves flitted through the grass here, there, all about him. Wolves! They were as fatal to his enterprise as savages. A trooping pack of prairie wolves had fallen in with the herd and hung close on the trail, trying to cut a calf away from its mother. The gray brutes boldly trotted within a few yards of him and slyly looked at him with pale, fiery eyes. They had already scented his captive. Precious time flew by. The situation, critical and baffling, had never before been met by him. There lay his little calf tied fast, and to the north ran many others, some of which he must, he would have. To think quickly had meant the solving of many a plainsman's problem. Should he stay with his prize to save it, or leave it to be devoured? Ah, you old great devils, he yelled, shaking his fist at the wolves. I know a trick or two. Slipping his hat between the legs of the calf, he fastened it securely. This done, he vaulted on Kentuck 
and was off with never a backward glance. Certain it was that the wolves would not touch anything alive or dead that bore the scent of a human being. The bison scurried away a long half-mile in the lead, sailing northward like a cloud shadow over the plain. Kentuck, meddlesome, overeager, would have run himself out in short order, but the wary hunter, strong to restrain as well as impel, with the long day in his mind, kept the steed in his easy stride which, springily and stretching, overhauled the herd in a course of several miles. A dash, a whirl, a shock, a leap, horse and hunter working in perfect accord, and a fine big calf, bellowing lustily, struggled desperately for freedom under the remorseless knee. The big hands toyed with him, and then, secure in the double knots, the calf lay still, sticking out his tongue, and rolling his eyes with the coat of the hunter tucked under his bounds to keep away the wolves. The race had but begun, the horse had but warmed to his work, the hunter had but tasted of sweet triumph. Another hopeful of a buffalo mother, negligent in danger, truant from his brothers, stumbled and fell in the meshing loop. The hunter's vest, slipped over the calf's neck, served as danger signal to the wolves. Before the lumbering buffalo missed their loss, another red and black baby kicked helplessly on the grass and set up vain weak calls, and at last lay still, with the hunter's boot tied to his cords. Four, Jones counted them aloud in his mind, kept on. Fast hard work, covering upward of fifteen miles, had begun to tell on herd, horse, and man, and all slowed down to the call for strength. The fifth time Jones closed in on his game, he encountered different circumstances such as called forth his cunning. The herd had opened up, the mothers had fallen back to the rear, the calves hung almost out of sight under the shaggy sides of protectors. To try them out, Jones darted close in and threw his lasso. It struck a cow. With activity incredible in such a huge beast, she lunged at him. Kentuck, expecting just such a move, wheeled to safety. This duel, ineffectual on both sides, kept up for a while, and all the time man and herd were jogging rapidly to the north. Jones could not let well enough alone. He acknowledged this even as he swore he must have five. Emboldened by his marvelous luck, and yielding headlong to the passion within, he threw caution to the winds. A lame old cow with a red cap caught his eye. In he spurred his willing horse, and slung his rope. It stung the haunch of the mother. The mad grunt she vented was no quicker than the velocity with which she plunged and reared. Jones had but time to swing his leg over the saddle when the hoofs beat down. Kentuck rolled on the plain, flinging his rider from him. The infuriated buffalo lowered her head for the fatal charge on the horse when the plainsman, jerking out his heavy colts, shot her dead in her tracks. Kentuck got to his feet unhurt, and stood his ground, quivering and but ready, showing his steadfast courage. He showed more, for his ears lay back, and his eyes had the gleam of the animal that strikes back. The calf ran round its mother. Jones lassoed it, and tied it down, being compelled to cut a piece from his lasso as the cords of the saddle had given out. He left his other boot with baby number five. The still heaving, smoking body of the victim called forth the stern, intrepid hunter's pity for a moment. Spill of blood he had not wanted, but he had not been able to avoid it. And mounting again with close-shut jaw and smoldering eye, he galloped to the north. Kentuck snorted. The pursuing wolf shied off in the grass. The pale sun began to slant westward. The cold iron stirrups froze and cut the hunter's bootless feet. When once more he came hounding the buffalo, they were considerably winded. 
Short tufted tails raised stiffly, gave warnings, snorts like puffs of escaping steam, and deep grunts from cavernous chest, evinced anger and impatience that might at any moment bring the herd to a defiant stand. He whizzed the shortened noose over the head of a calf that was laboring painfully to keep up, and it slipped down when a mighty grunt told him of peril. Never looking to see whence it came, he sprang into the saddle, fiery Kentuck jumped into action and hauled up with a shock that almost threw himself and the rider. The lasso, fast to the horse, and its loop end round the calf had caused a sudden check. A maddened cow bore down on Kentuck. The gallant horse straightened in a jump, but dragging the calf pulled him in a circle. And in another moment he was running round and round, the howling, kicking pivot. Then ensued a terrible race, with horse and bison describing a twenty-foot circle. Bang! Bang! The hunter fired two shots and heard the spats of the bullets, but they only augmented the frenzy of the beast. Faster, Canuck flew. Snorting in terror, closer drew the dusty, bouncing pursuer. The calf spun like a top. The lasso strung to tighter than wire. Jones strained to loosen the fastening, but in vain. He swore at his carelessness in dropping his knife by the last calf he had tied. He thought of shooting the rope, yet dared not risk the shot. A hollow sound turned him again. With the colts leveled, bang! Dust flew from the ground beyond the bison. The two charges left in the gun were all that stood between him and eternity. With a desperate display of strength, Jones threw his weight in a backward pull and hauled Kentuck up. Then he leaned far back in the saddle and shoved the colts out beyond the horse's flank. Down went the broad head with its black glistening horns. Bang! She slid forward with a crash, plowing the ground with hoofs and nose spouted blood, uttered a hoarse cry, kicked, and died. Kentuck, for once completely terrorized, reared and plunged from the cow, dragging the calf. Stern command and iron harm forced him to a standstill. The calf nearly strangled, recovered when the noose was slipped, and moaned a feeble protest against life and captivity. The remainder of Jones's lasso went to bind number six, and one of his socks went to serve as a reminder to the persistent wolves. Six on, on, Kentuck, on. Weakening, but unconscious of it, with bloody hands and feet without lasso, and with only one charge in his revolver, hatless, coatless, vestless, bootless, the wild hunter urged on the noble horse. The herd had gained miles in the interval of the fight. Game to the backbone, Kentuck lengthened out to overhaul it, and slowly the rolling gap lessened and lessened, a long hour thumped away, with the rumbling growing nearer. Once again, the lagging calves dotted the grassy plain before the hunter. He dashed beside a burly calf, grasped a tail, stopped his horse, and jumped. The calf went down with him, and did not come up. The knotted, blood-stained hand, like claws of steel, bound the hind legs close and fast with a leathern belt, and left between them a thorn and bloody sock. Seven on, old faithful. We must have another, the last. This is your day. The blood that flecked the hunter was not all his own. The sun slanted westwardly toward the purpling horizon. The grassy plain gleamed like a ruffled sea of grass. The gray wolves loped on. When next the hunter came within sight of the herd over a wavy ridge, changes in its shape had movement, met his gaze. The calves were almost done. They could run no more. Their mothers faced the south and trotted slowly to and fro. The bulls were grunting, herding, pining close. It looked as if the herd meant to stand and fight. This mattered little to the hunter, 
who had captured seven calves since dawn. The first limping calf he reached tried to elude the grasping hand and failed. Kentuck had been trained to wheel to the right or left, in whichever way his rider leaned, and as Jones bent over and caught the upraised tail, the horse turned to strike the calf with both front hoofs. The calf rolled, the horse plunged down, the rider sped beyond to the dust. Though the calf was tired, he still could bellow, and he filled the air with robust balls. Jones all at once saw twenty or more buffalo dash in at him with fast, twinkling short legs. With the thought of it, he was in the air to the saddle. As the black round mounds charged from every direction, Kentuck let out with all there was left in him. He leaped and whirled, pitched and swerved, in a roaring, clashing, dusty melee, beating hoofs through the turf, flying tails whipped the air, and everywhere were dusky, sharp-pointed heads tossing low. Kentuck squeezed out, unscathed. The mob of bison, bristling, turned to lumber after the main herd. Jones seized his opportunity and rode after them, yelling with all his might. He drove them so hard that soon the little fellows lagged paces behind. Only one or two old cows straggled with the calves. Then, wheeling Kentuck, he cut between the herd and a calf, and rode it down. Bewildered, the tousled little bull bellowed in great affright. The hunter seized the stiff tail, and calling to his horse, leaped off. But his strength was far spent, and the buffalo, larger than his fellows, thrashed about and jerked in terror. Jones threw it again and again, but it struggled up, never once ceasing its loud demands for help. Finally the hunter tripped it up and fell upon it with his knees. Above the rumble of retreating hooves, Jones heard the familiar short, quick, jarring pound on the turf. Kentuck neighed his alarm and raced to the right. Bearing down on the hunter, hurtling through the air, was a giant furry mass, instinct with fierce life and power, the buffalo cow, robbed of her young, with his senses almost numb, barely able to pull and raise the colt, the plainsman, willed to live and to keep his captive. His leveled arm wavered like a leaf in a storm. Bang! Fire, smoke, a shock, a jarring crash, and silence. The calf stirred beneath him. He put out a hand to touch a warm, furry coat. The mother had fallen beside him. Lifting a heavy hoof, he laid it over the neck of the calf to serve as additional weight. He lay still and listened. The rumble of the herd died away in the distance. The evening waned. Still the hunter lay quiet. From time to time the calf struggled and bellowed. Lank gray wolves appeared on all sides. They prowled about with hungry howls and shoved black-tipped noses through the grass. The sun sank and the sky paled to opal blue. A star shone out, then another and another. Over the prairie slanted the first dark shadow of night. Suddenly the hunter laid his ear to the ground and listened. Faint beats like throbs of a pulsing heart shuddered from the soft turf. Stronger they grew till the hunter raised his head. Dark forms approached. Voices broke the silence. The creaking of a wagon scared away the wolves. "'This way!' shouted the hunter weakly. "'Ha! Ah, there he is, hurt!' cried Rude, vaulting the wheel. "'Tie up this calf. How many did you find?' The voice grew fainter. Seven alive and in good shape. And all your clothes.' But the last words fell on unconscious ears. End of chapter 3《Chapter Four of the Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter Four. The Trail. Frank, what do we do about horses? Asked Jones. 
Jim will want to bay, and of course you'll want to ride Spot. The rest of our nags will only do to pack the outfit. I've been thinking, replied the foreman. You sure will need good mounts. Now it happens that a friend of mine is just at this time at House Rock Valley, an outlying post of one of the big Utah ranches. He is getting in the horses off the range, and he has some cracking good ones. Let's ooze over there. It's only thirty miles, and get some horses from him. We were all eager to act upon Frank's suggestion, so plans were made for the three of us to ride over and select our mounts. Frank and Jim would follow with the pack train, and if all went well, on the following evening we would camp under the shadow of Buckskin. Early next morning we were on our way. I tried to find a soft place on old Baldy, one of Frank's pack horses. He was a horse that would not have raised up at the trumpet of doom. Nothing under the sun, Frank said, bothered old Baldy but the operation of shoeing. We made the distance to the outpost by noon, and found Frank's friend a genial and obliging cowboy, who said we could have all the horses we wanted. While Jones and Wallace strutted around the big corral, which was full of vicious, dusty, shaggy horses and mustangs, I sat high on the fence. I heard them talking about points and girth and stride, and a lot of terms that I could not understand. Wallace selected a heavy sorrel and Jones a big bay, very like Jim's. I had observed, way over in the corner of a corral, a bunch of cayuses, and among them a clean-limbed black horse. Edging round on the fence, I got a closer view, and then cried out that I had found my horse. I jumped down and caught him, much to my surprise, for the other horses were wild and had kicked viciously. The black was beautifully built, wide-chested and powerful, but not heavy. His coat glistened like sheeny black satin and he had a white face and white feet and a long mane. "'I don't know about giving you Satan. That's his name,' said the cowboy. "'The foreman rides him often. He's the fastest, the best climber, and the best-dispositioned horse on the range. But I guess I can let you have him,' he continued when he saw my disappointed face. "'By George!' exclaimed Jones. "'You've got it on us this time.' you like to trade? asked Wallace, as his sorrel tried to bite him. That black looks sort of fierce. I led my prize out of the corral, up to the little cabin nearby, where I tied him and proceeded to get acquainted after a fashion of my own. Though not versed in horse lore, I knew that half the battle was to win his confidence. I smoothed his silky coat and patted him, and then surreptitiously slipped a lump of sugar from my pocket. This sugar, which I had purloined in Flagstaff, and carried all the way across the desert, was somewhat disreputably soiled, and Satan sniffed at it disdainfully. Evidently he had never smelled or tasted sugar. I pressed it into his mouth, he munched it, and then looked me over with some interest. I handed him another lump. He took it and rubbed his nose against me. Satan was mine. Frank and Jim came along early in the afternoon. What with packing, changing saddles, and shoeing the horses, we were all busy. Old Baldy would not be shot, so we let him off till a more opportune time. By four o'clock we were riding toward the slopes of Buckskin, now only a few miles away, standing up higher and darker. "'What's that for?' inquired Wallace, pointing to a long, rusty, wire-wrapped, double-barreled blunderbuss of a shotgun, stuck in the holster of Jones's saddle. The colonel, who had been having a fine time with the impatient and curious hounds, 
did not vouchsafe any information on that score. But very shortly we were destined to learn the use of this incongruous firearm. I was riding in advance of Wallace and a little behind Jones. The dogs, excepting Jude, who had been kicked and lamed, were ranging along before their master. Suddenly, right before me, I saw an immense jackrabbit, and just then Mose and Don caught sight of it. In fact, Mose bumped his blunt nose into the rabbit. When it leaped into scared action, Mose yelped, and Don followed suit. Then they were after it in wild, clamorous pursuit. Jones let out the centaurian blast, now becoming familiar, and spurred after them. He reached over, pulled the shotgun out of the holster, and fired both barrels at the jumping dogs. I expressed my amazement in strong language, and Wallace whistled. Don came sneaking back with his tail between his legs, and Mose, who had cowered as if stung, circled around ahead of us. Joe's finally succeeded in getting him back. Come in, ya, measly rabbit dogs. What do you mean chasing off that way? We're after lions. Lions, understand? Don looked thoroughly convinced of his error, but Mose, being more thick-headed, appeared mystified rather than hurt or frightened. Size shot do you use? I asked. Number ten. They don't hurt much at seventy-five yards, replied our leader. I use them as sort of a long arm. You see, the dogs must be made to know what we're after. Ordinary means would never do in a case like this. My idea is to break them off coyotes, wolves, and deer. And when we cross the lion trail, we'll let them go. I'll teach them sooner than you'd think. Only we must get where we can see what they were trailing. Then I can tell whether to call them back or not. The sun was gliding the rim of the desert ramparts when we began the ascent of the foothills of Buckskin. A steep trail wound zigzag up the mountain. We led our horses as it was a long, hard climb. From time to time I stopped to catch my breath. I gazed away across the growing void to the gorgeous pink cliffs far above and beyond the red wall, which had seemed so high, and then out toward the desert. The irregular, ragged crack in the plain, apparently only a thread of broken ground, was the Grand Canyon. How unutterably remote! wild grand was that world of red and brown of purple pall of vague outline two thousand feet probably we mounted to what frank called little buckskin in the west a copper glow ridged with lead-colored clouds marked where the sun had set the air was very thin and icy cold at the first clump of pinion pines we made dry camp when i sat down it was as if i had been anchored Frank solicitously remarked that I looked sort of beat. Jim built a roaring fire and began getting supper. A snow squall came on the rushing wind. The air grew colder, and though I hugged the fire, I could not get warm. When I had satisfied my hunger, I rolled out my sleeping bag and crept into it. I stretched my aching limbs and did not move again. Once I awoke drowsily, feeling the warmth of the fire, and I heard Frank say, He's asleep dead to the world he's all in said jones riding what did it you know how a horse tears a man to pieces will it be able to stand it asked frank with as much solicitude as if he were my brother when you get out after anything well you're hell and think of country we're going into i know you've never seen the breaks of this siwash 
but I have, and it's the worst and roughest country I ever saw. Breaked after breaks like the ridges on a washboard, heading on the south slope of Buckin and running down side by side, miles and miles deeper and deeper, till they run into that awful hole. It will be a killin' trip on men, horses, and dogs. Now, Mr. Wallace, he's been campin' and roughin' with the Navajos for months. He's in some kind of shape, but, uh... Frank concluded his remark with a doubtful pause. I'm some worried, too, replied Jones. But he would come. He stood the desert well enough. Even the Mormons said that. In the ensuing silence, the fire sputtered, the glare fitfully merged into dark shadows under the weird pinions, and the wind moaned through the short branches. Well, drawled a slow, soft voice, sure I reckon you're hollerin' too soon. Frank's measly trick puttin' him on spot showed me. He rode out on spot, and he rode in on spot. Sure he'll stay. It was not all the warmth of the blankets that glowed over me then. The voices died away dreamily, and my eyelids dropped sleepily tight. Late in the night I sat up suddenly, roused by some unusual disturbance fire was dead, the wind swept with a rush through the pinions. From the black darkness came the staccato chorus of coyotes. Don barked his displeasure, Sounder made the welkin ring, and old Mose growled low and deep, grumbling like muttered thunder. Then all was quiet, and I slept. Dawn, rosy red, confronted me when I opened my eyes. Breakfast was ready, Frank was packing old Baldy, Jones talked to his horse as he saddled him. Wallace came stooping his giant figure under the pinions. The dogs, eager and soft-eyed, sat around Jim and begged. The sun peeped over the pink cliffs. The desert still lay asleep, tranced in a purple and golden-streaked mist. "'Come, come,' said Jones in his big voice. "'We're slow. Here's the sun.' "'Easy, easy,' replied Frank. "'We've got all the time there is.' When Frank threw the saddle over Satan, I interrupted him and said I would care for my horse henceforward. Soon we were under way, the horses fresh, the dogs scenting the keen cold air. The trail rolled over the ridges of pinion and scrubby pine. Occasionally we could see the black, ragged crest of buckskin above us. From one of these ridges I took my last long look back at the desert, and engraved on my mind a picture of the red wall and the many-hued ocean of sand. The trail, narrow and indistinct, mounted the last slow-rising slope. The pinions failed, and the scrubby pines became abundant. At length we reached the top and entered the great arched aisles of buckskin forest. The ground was flat as a table. Magnificent pine trees, with branches high and spreading, gave the eye glad welcome. Some of these monarchs were eight feet thick at the base and two hundred feet high. Here and there one lay gaunt and prostrate, a victim of the wind. The smell of pitch pine was sweetly overpowering. When I went through here two weeks ago, the snow was a foot deep and a bog in places, said Frank. The sun has been oozing round here some. I'm afraid Jones won't find any snow on this end of buckskin. Thirty miles of winding trail, brown and springy from its thick mat of pine needles, shaded always by the massive semi-bark trees, took us over the extremity of buckskin. Then we faced down into the head of a ravine, 
that ever grew deeper, stonier and rougher. I shifted from side to side, from leg to leg, in my saddle, dismounted and hobbled before Satan, mounted again, and rode on. Jones called the dogs and complained to them of the lack of snow. Wallace sat his horse comfortably, taking long pulls at his pipe and long gazes at the shaggy sides of the ravine. Frank, energetic and tireless, kept the pack-horses in the trail. Jim jogged on silently, and so we rode down to Oak Spring. The spring was pleasantly situated in a grove of oaks and pinions under the shadow of three cliffs. Three ravines opened here into an oval valley. A rude cabin of rough-hewn logs stood near the spring. "'Get down, get down!' sang out Frank. "'We'll hang up here. Beyond oak is no man's land. We take our chances on water after we leave here.' When we had unsaddled, unpacked, and got our fire roaring on the wide stone hearth of the cabin, it was once again night. "'Boys,' said Jones after supper, we're now on the edge of the lion country. Frank saw a lion sign in here only two weeks ago, and though the snow is gone, we stand a show of finding tracks in the sand and dust. Tomorrow morning, before the sun gets a chance at the bottom of these ravines, we'll be up and doing. We'll each take a dog and search in different directions. Keep the dog in leash, and when he opens up, examine the ground carefully for tracks. If a dog opens on any track that you are sure isn't a lion's, punish him. And when a lion track is found, hold the dog in, wait, and signal. We'll use a signal I have tried and found far-reaching and easy to yell. Wahoo! That's it. Once yelled, it means come. Twice means come quickly. Three times means come. Danger. In one corner of the cabin was a platform of poles covered with straw. I threw the sleeping bag on this and was soon stretched out. Misgivings as to my strength worried me before I closed my eyes. Once on my back I felt I could not rise. My chest was sore, my cough deep and rasping. It seemed I had scarcely closed my eyes when Joan's impatient voice recalled me from sweet oblivion. Frank, Frank, daylight, Jim, boys, he called. I tumbled out in a gray wan twilight. It was cold enough to make the fire acceptable, but nothing like the morning before on buckskin. "'Come to the festal board,' drawled Jim, almost before I had my boots laced. "'Jones,' said Frank, "'Jim and I'll ooze round here today. There's lots to do, and we want to have things hitched right before we strike for the seawash. We've got to shoe old Baldy, and if we can't get him locoed, it'll take all of us to do it.' The light was still gray when Jones led off with Don, Wallace with Sounder, and I with Mose. Jones directed us to separate, follow the dry stream beds in the ravines, and remember his instructions given the night before. The ravine to the right, which I entered, was choked with huge stones fallen from the cliff above, and pinions growing thick, and I wondered apprehensively how a man could evade a wild animal in such a place, much less chase it. Old Mose pulled on his chain and sniffed at coyote and deer tracks, and every time he evinced such interest in such, I cut him with a switch, which, to tell the truth, he did not notice. I thought I heard a shout, and, holding Mose tight, waited and listened. Wahoo! Wahoo! floated on the air, rather deadened as if it had come from round the triangular cliff that faced into the valley. Urging and dragging Mose, 
I ran down the ravine as fast as I could, and soon encountered Wallace coming from the middle ravine. "'Jones,' he said excitedly, "'this way. There's the signal again.' We dashed in haste for the mouth of the third ravine, and came suddenly upon Jones, kneeling under a pinion tree. "'Boys, look!' he exclaimed as he pointed to the ground. There, clearly defined in the dust, was a cat-track, as big as my spread hand, and the mere sight of it sent a chill up my spine. Now, there's a lion-track for you, made by a female, two-year-old, but can't say if she passed here last night. Don won't take the trail. Try Mose. I led Mose to the big round imprint, and put his nose down into it. The old hound sniffed and sniffed, then lost interest. Cold, ejaculated Jones. No go. Try Sounder. Come on, boy. You've got a nose for it. He urged the reluctant hound forward. Sounder needed not to be shown the trail. He stuck his nose in it, and stood very quiet for a long moment. Then he quivered slightly, raised his nose, and sought the next track. Step by step, he went slowly, doubtfully. All at once his tail wagged stiffly. "'Look at that!' cried Jones in delight. "'He's caught a scent when the others couldn't. Hey, Mose, get back. Keep Mose and Don back. Give him room.' Slowly Sounder paced up the ravine as carefully as if he were traveling on thin ice. He passed the dusty open trail to a scaly ground with little bits of grass, and he kept on. We were electrified to hear him give vent to a deep bugle-blast note of eagerness. "'By George, he's got it, boys!' exclaimed Jones, as he lifted the stubborn, struggling hound off the trail. "'I know that bay. It means a lion passed here this morning.' and we'll get him up as sure as you're alive. Come, Sounder. Now for the horses. As we ran pell-mell into the little glade, where Jim sat mending some saddle trapping, Frank strode up the trail with the horses. Well, I heard Sounder, he said with his genial smile. Something's coming off, eh? You'll have to ooze round some to keep up with that hound. I saddled Satan with fingers that trembled in excitement and pushed my little Remington automatic into the rifle holster. "'Boys, listen,' said our leader. "'We're off now in the beginning of a hunt new to you. Remember, no shooting, no bloodletting, except in self-defense. Keep as close to me as you can, listen for the dogs, and when you fall behind or separate, yell out the signal cry. Don't forget this. We're bound to lose each other. Look out for the spikes and branches on the trees. If the dogs split, whoever follows the one that trees they lie on, must wait there till the rest come up. Off now. Come, Sounder, Mose, you rascal, Aya, come, Don, come, puppy, and take your medicine. Except Mose, the hounds were all trembling and running eagerly to and fro. When Sounder was loosed, he let them in a bee-line to the trail, with us cantering after. Sounder worked exactly as before, only he followed the line of tracks a little further up the ravine before he bayed. He kept going faster and faster, occasionally letting out one deep, short yelp. The other hounds did not give tongue, but eager, excited, baffled, kept at his heels. The ravine was long, and the wash at the bottom up which the lion had proceeded turned and twisted round boulders large as houses, and led through dense groves of some short, rough shrub. Now and then the lion tracks showed plainly in the sand. For five miles or more, Sounder led us up the ravine, which began to contract and grow steep. The dry stream-bed got to be full of thickets of poplar, tall, straight branchless saplings, about the size of a man's arm, 
and growing so close we had to press them aside to let our horses through. Presently Sounder slowed up and appeared at fault. We found him puzzling over an open grassy patch, and after nosing it for a little while he began skirting the edge. "'Cute dog,' declared Jones. "'That Sounder will make a lion chaser. Our game has gone up here somewhere.' Sure enough, Sounder directly gave tongue from the side of the ravine. It was climb for us now. Broken shale, rocks of all dimensions, pinions down and pinions up, made ascending no easy problem. We had to dismount and lead our horses. Thus losing ground, Jones forged ahead and reached the top of the ravine first. When Wallace and I got up, breathing heavily, Jones and the hounds were out of sight. But Sounder kept voicing his clear call, giving us our direction. Off we flew over ground that was still rough, but enjoyable going compared to the ravine slopes. The ridge was sparsely covered with cedar and pinion, through which, far ahead, we pretty soon spied Jones. Wallace signaled, and our leader answered twice. We caught up with him on the brink of another ravine, deeper and craggier than the first, full of dead, gnarled pinion and splintered rocks. "'This gulch is the largest of the three that head in at Oak Spring,' said Jones. "'Boys, don't forget your direction.' always keep a feeling where camp is always sense it every time you turn the dogs have gone down that lion is in here somewhere maybe he lives down in the high cliffs near the spring and came up here last night for a kill he's buried somewhere lions never travel far hark hark there's sounder and the rest of them they've got the scent they've all got it down boys down and ride with that he crashed into the cedar with a way that showed me how impervious he was to slashing branches sharp as thorns and steep descent and peril. Wallace's big sorrel plunged after him, and the rolling stones cracked. Suffering as I was by this time, with cramp in my legs and torturing pain, I had to choose between holding my horse in or falling off. So I chose the former, and accordingly got behind. Dead cedar and pinion trees lay everywhere, with their contorted limbs reaching out like the arms of the devilfish. Stones blocked every opening. Making the bottom of the ravine, after what seemed an interminable time, I found the tracks of Jones and Wallace. A long wahoo drew me on. Then the mellow bay of a hound floated up the ravine. Satan made up time in the sandy stream-bed, but kept me busy dodging overhanging branches. I became aware, after a succession of efforts to keep from being strung on pinions, that the sand before me was clean and trackless. Hauling Satan up sharply, I waited irresolutely and listened. Then from high up in the ravine side wafted down a medley of yelps and barks. Wahoo! Wahoo! Ringing down the slope, peeled against the cliff behind me and set the wild echoes flying. Satan, of his own accord, headed up the incline. Surprised at this, I gave him free rein. How he did climb! Not long did it take me to discover that he picked out easier going than I had. Once I saw Jones crossing a ledge far above me, and I yelled our signal cry. The answer returned clear and sharp. Then its echo crackled under the hollow cliff, and crossing and recrossing the ravine it died at last, far away, like the muffled peal of a bell-boy. Again I heard the blended yelping of the hounds, and closer at hand, I saw a long, low cliff above, and decided that the hounds were running at the base of it. Another chorus of yelps, quicker, wilder than the others, drew a yell from me. Instinctively I knew the dogs had jumped game of some kind. Satan knew it as well as I. 
for he quickened his pace and sent the stones clattering behind him. I gained the base of the yellow cliff, but found no tracks in the dust of ages that had crumbled in its shadow, nor did I hear the dogs. Considering how close they had seemed, this was strange. I halted and listened. Silence reigned supreme. The ragged cracks in the cliff walls could have harbored many a watching lion, and I cast an apprehensive glance into their dark confines. Then I turned my horse to get round the cliff and over the ridge. When I again stopped, all I could hear was the thumping of my heart and the laboring panting of Satan. I came to a break in the cliff, a steep place of weathered rock, and I put Satan to it. He went up with a will. From the narrow saddle of the ridge crest, I tried to take my bearings. Below me slanted the green of pinion, with bleach treetops, standing like spears and uprising yellow stones. Fancying I heard a gunshot, I leaned a straining ear against the soft breeze. The proof came presently in the unmistakable report of Jones's blunderbuss. It was repeated almost instantly, giving reality to the direction, which was down the slope of what I concluded must be the third ravine. Wondering what was the meaning of the shots, and chagrined, because I was out of the race, but calmer in mind, I let Seton stand. Hardly a moment elapsed before a sharp bark tingled in my ears. It belonged to old Mose. Soon I distinguished a rattling of stones and the sharp metallic clicks of hoofs striking rocks. Then into a space below me loped a beautiful deer, so large that at first I took it for an elk. Another sharp bark, nearer this time, told the tale of Mose's dereliction. In a few moments he came in sight, running with his tongue out and his head held high. Hiya, you old gladiator! Hiya, hiya! I yelled and yelled again. Mose passed over the saddle on the trail of the deer, and his short bark floated back to remind me how far he was from a lion dog. Then I divined the meaning of the shotgun reports. The hounds had crossed a fresher trail than that of the lion, and our leader had discovered it. Despite a keen appreciation of Jones's task, I gave way to amusement, and repeated Wallace's paradoxical formula, Pet the lions and shoot the hounds. So I headed down the ravine, looking for a blunt, bold crag, which I had described from camp. I found it before long, and, profiting by past failures to judge of distance, gave my first impression a great stretch, and then decided that I was more than two miles from Oak. Long after two miles had been covered, and I had begun to associate Jim's biscuits with a certain soft seat near a ruddy fire, I was apparently still the same distance from my landmark crag. Suddenly a slight noise brought me to a halt. I listened intently. Only an indistinct rattling of small rocks disturbed the impressive stillness. It might have been the weathering that goes on constantly, and it might have been an animal. I inclined to the former idea till I saw Satan's ears go up. Jones had told me to watch the ears of my horse and short as had been my acquaintance with Satan, I had learned that he always discovered things more quickly than I, so I waited patiently. From time to time a rattling roll of pebbles, almost musical, caught my ears. It came from the base of the wall of yellow cliff, and barred the summit of all those ridges. Satan threw up his head and nosed the breeze. The delicate, almost stealthy sounds, the action of my horse, the waiting, drove my heart to extra work. The breeze quickened and fanned my cheek, and borne upon it came the faint and faraway bay of a hound. It came again and again, each time nearer. Then on a stronger puff of wind rang the clear, deep, mellow call that had given Sounder his beautiful name. 
Never, it seemed, had I heard music so blood-stirring. Sounder was on the trail of something, and he had it headed my way. Satan heard, shot up his long ears, and tried to go ahead. But I restrained and soothed him into quiet. Long moments I sat there with the poignant consciousness of the wildness of the scene, of the significant rattling of the stones, and of the bell-tongued hound baying incessantly, sending warm joy through my veins, the absorption in sensations now, yielding only to the hunting instinct when Satan snorted and quivered. Again the deep-tongued bay rang into the silence with the stirring thrill of life, and a sharp rattling of stones just above brought another snort from Satan. Across an open space in the pinions a gray form flashed. I leapt off Satan and knelt to get a better view under the trees. I soon made out another deer passing along the base of the cliff. Mounting again, I rode up to the cliff to wait for Sounder. A long time I had to wait for the hound. It proved that the atmosphere was as deceiving in regard to sound as to sight. Finally, Sounder came running along the wall. I got off to intercept him. The crazy fellow, he had never responded to my overtures of friendship, uttered short, sharp yelps of delight and actually leapt in my arms. But I could not hold him. He darted upon the trail again and paid no heed to my angry shouts. With resolve to overhaul him, I jumped on Satan and whirled after the hound. The black stretched out with such a stride that I was at pains to keep my seat. I dodged the jutting rocks and projecting snags, felt stinging branches in my face, and the rush of sweet dry wind. Under the crumbling walls, over slopes of weathered stone and droppings of shelving rock, round protruding noses of cliff, over an underpinion, Satan thundered. He came out on top of the ridge at the narrow back I called a saddle. Here I caught a glimpse of Sounder far below, going down into the ravine from which I had ascended some time before. I called to him, but I might as well call to the wind. Weary to the point of exhaustion, I once more turned Satan toward camp. I lay forward on his neck and let him have his will. Far down the ravine, I awoke to strange sound and soon recognized the cracking of iron-shod hoofs against stone, then voices. Turning an abrupt bend in the sandy wash, I ran into Jones and Wallace. "'Fall in. Line up in the sad procession,' said Jones. "'Tage and the pup are faithful. The rest of the dogs are somewhere between the Grand Canyon and the Utah Desert.' I related my adventures and tried to spare Mose and Sounder as much as conscience would permit. "'Hard luck.' commented Jones. Just as the hounds jumped the cougar. Oh, they bounced him out of the rocks all right. Don't you remember just under the cliff wall where you and Wallace came up to me? Well, just as they jumped him, they ran right into fresh deer tracks. I saw one of the deer. Now that's too much for any hounds except those trained for lions. Shot at most twice, but couldn't turn him. He has to be hurt. They've all got to be hurt to make them understand. Wallace told of a wild ride somewhere in Jones's wake, and of sundry knocks and bruises he had sustained, of pieces of corduroy he had left decorating the cedars, and of a most humiliating event where a gaunt and bare pinion snag had penetrated under his belt and lifted him, mad and kicking off his horse. "'These western nags will hang you on a limb every chance they get,' declared Jones, "'and don't you overlook that. Well, there's the cabin. We'd better stay here for a few days or a week.' and break in the dogs and horses, for this day's work was apple pie to what we'll get in the sea wash. 
I groaned inwardly and was remorselessly glad to see Wallace fall off his horse and walk on one leg to the cabin. When I got my saddle off, Satan had given him a drink and hobbled him. I crept into the cabin and dropped like a log. I felt as if every bone in my body was broken and my flesh was raw. I got gleeful gratification from Wallace's complaints, and Jones remarked that he had a stitch in his back. So ended the first chase after cougars. End of chapter 4「When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.